Hey, grab your Bibles. We're going to jump right in. Go to John chapter 10. We're going to do something a little bit unusual this morning and also next week. Uh, Because we've been blowing through John 9 and 10 pretty fast, in case you noticed. Blowing through the narrative. And last Sunday, I just briefly, almost in passing, mentioned a couple of applications that were in our text from last Sunday. And I thought I'd go right past them. And I had a couple of you reach out and say, hey, could you share more on those subjects? Which I love, by the way, if you give me that feedback. That's fantastic. And a couple elders as well who said, you know what? It would be good for us to just slow down and go a little bit deeper on those uh, two subjects. So we're going to... We're going to drill down deeper this morning on a very important and very practical, very practical subject matter that affects everybody in this room. So I think it'll be helpful. Before we do that, you're in John 10, right? Let's back up. We're, we're only covering, let me see. I think I have a, do I have a slide, Lauren? Boom. Good. We're only going to do a couple new verses this morning, but let's back up to verse 1 and let's just do some review from last week really quickly. We'll run through it together just so that you get the context of where we've been, and then we'll cover our three verses for this morning. Okay, recall as we look, as we turn over to chapter 10, we talked about it last week, uh, even though we're, we're, you know, you might be turning the page and going from chapter 9 to chapter 10, the context doesn't change, right? Jesus is still speaking to these Pharisees, this group of Pharisees, and he is about to share with them two very vivid word pictures uh, as, he, as he speaks to them, and he's doing it in order to test their spiritual eyesight, okay? So think about that. The first one is in verses one through six, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is what? A thief and a robber. So a couple interpretive bits that we learned last Sunday. The best way to understand this fold, this sheepfold, is to understand it as Israel. Because Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So that's where the sheep are. This is Israel. But the Pharisees, who by all appearances look like they were the shepherds of, of Israel, were not. They have climbed into that sheepfold by another way. Okay? They are not legitimate uh, uh, shepherds. Okay? And so Jesus is basically accusing them, you guys are the thieves and robbers because you have not come in by the door, which is the legitimate way that the shepherd comes in. You are the thieves and robbers. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. So the legitimate shepherd doesn't have to sneak in, doesn't have to come into the cover of night or climb over the wall. He comes in by the door, right? So in contrast to the Pharisees, the true shepherd, and we looked at this last Sunday, enters this door into Israel by his messianic credentials, by his identity. That's what opens the door to the true shepherd because he is Israel's Messiah. Verse 3, to him, the true shepherd, the doorkeeper opens. Now, we looked at the controversy on that last week. Some people say that's simply God the Father who opened the door to God the Son. Others think this is a reference to John the Baptist being the forerunner of the Messiah, the one that announces his arrival, it's, it's possible that it's John the Baptist who is the doorkeeper in this particular uh, word picture. It goes on, And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. We looked at last week how beautiful it is that Jesus, if you're, if you're one of his sheep, he knows you by name. It's beautiful. Verse 4, When he puts forth, or a better translation, when he brings out all of his own, He goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Now, there is a clear implication in this part of the passage that speaks of of sovereignty in this figure of speech. Notice, Jesus doesn't call all of the sheep out. He calls his own sheep out. Uh, And we'll get to that. As we continue on in the chapter, we'll get into more. But what we stressed last week was the fact that the beautiful way that Jesus leads you and I are his chosen sheep. He leads us from the front, right? He leads sacrificially. He goes before us. He doesn't stand in the back and whip at us, right? He leads us out. And that's very important in terms of modeling for what shepherds in the church are supposed to do. And what is our job? We respond to his voice, right? We recognize his voice. He's our true shepherd. We respond. We come out of the fold and we follow him. Verse five, a stranger... These sheep simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Verse 6, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things for which he had been saying to them. So they're spiritually blind. Jesus just tested them. They don't get it, right? So Jesus says, okay, let me try another one. Let me try a second 
word picture, and we'll see if you pick up on this one. Verses 7 through 10. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. So now we have a new metaphor, right? At first, Jesus says, I'm the true shepherd who goes through the door. Now he says, I am also the door, right? Meaning, as we saw last week, that he is the only way into God's kingdom. And we looked at that picture of a wilderness, uh, wilderness sheepfold that had a, didn't have a gate on it, so the shepherd himself just laid in the doorway. So if you were a sheep trying to get out, you had to cross over the shepherd. And if you were a predator trying to get in, you had to go over the shepherd. He is the actual door. Okay? So nobody comes to the Father except by him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. This is what he means by saying that he's the door. Again, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. It will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Right? That's a description of Satan, isn't it? The devil. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So we saw last Sunday the exquisite way here that Jesus provides for us, for his sheep, right? First in safety or salvation in this case. Second in freedom, this idea that we can go in and go out. And then third, as Dave read for us in our call to worship this morning in Psalm 23, this idea of finding pasture. The true shepherd leads his flock to lie down and green pastures, and to, to bring us by still waters, uh, where the abundant life is, where our souls are restored. So we have these two word pictures. The Pharisees don't get it. Uh, Jesus knows they're not going to get it. They are spiritually blind, but he's testing them here. Now, he goes on, three verses for this morning. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. How many times have we heard that? The Greek word here for good, kalos, is a very common word in in the Greek New Testament, used over 100 times in the New Testament. It has a wide range of meaning. But when you read this, don't just think good as, you know, I just had a good meal. This is not something mildly pleasant. When he uses this word, it's a reference to something that is utterly unique. It's a reference to someone who is absolutely preeminent and excellent and admirable and precious. That's what he means here by good. This is Jesus' fourth great I am statement, by the way. We've been tracking these as we've gone through John's gospel. The first one, he said, I am the bread of life. Remember? Then what did he say next? I am the light of the world. And then just last Sunday, we, we saw I am the door of the sheep, and now we have I am the good shepherd. Each one of these statements, well, there's three more in John's gospel, are designed to give us the, the idea of Jesus' very unique identity, right? As, as Israel's Messiah, his divine identity, his unique purpose and mission that he uh, has from the Father. And what is the defining mark of this, this good, this preeminent shepherd? Verse 11 continues, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life. Not only, not only does the good shepherd provide for the flock in all those ways I just mentioned, he loves unto death. That is an amazing statement. How, how, he does so much more than just even the, think about even the best, if you could imagine the best of shepherds, a shepherd who might put himself between the sheep and a wolf, for example, who might risk his life to protect the sheep. Jesus does far more than that. He deliberately lays down his life. Right? We would be super impressed by a shepherd that jumped in front of a pack of wolves with a, with a staff. We'd go, that's a good shepherd. Jesus deliberately dies for the sake of the sheep. So he goes so much further beyond that. Now listen to the sharp contrast in verses 12 and 13. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned. Better translation, he doesn't truly care about the sheep. He's a hired hand. Now, I think Jesus intends to make a distinction here between the wicked false shepherds of Israel, the Pharisees, these guys who arrogantly claim to see, but they don't, obviously, and this hired hand. Is the hired hand a false shepherd? Yes. It says that right there in the text, right? Because he doesn't do what's required of a shepherd. But this shepherd is much more feckless than he is wicked, if that makes any sense. The Pharisees are just wicked. This guy is feckless. He is weak. He is incompetent. He is completely self-centered. This shepherd operates only for his own benefit. He operates in order to pull a paycheck, we might say, in modern day, right? He's just there to pull his paycheck. So, so he's not going to stick around when the predator comes. He doesn't get paid enough for that, right? He's just going to take off. He just doesn't care enough about the sheep to put himself at risk. 
So in crunch time, when the shepherd is most needed, this guy is gone. And he doesn't care. Let the sheep be scattered. Let them run off into the hills and be lost. That's, I don't care. Or let them be ravaged and eaten by the wolves. He's not concerned about it. So we have here this gaping chasm of difference between types of shepherds. We have false wicked shepherds, then we have cowardly weak shepherds, and then we have the good shepherd who loves unto death. That's the big contrast that Jesus wants the Pharisees to see. They're just completely blind to it. All right, so with that as our background, here is the issue that I want to take up this morning, this practical issue that is on my heart and is on the heart of the elders as well. Um, as you know, I spent a lot of my time uh, reading um, all kinds of material during the week about practical theology and ministry life. Um, a lot of that has to do with trends that we are seeing in the modern day church. Our elder team is, is just always trying to be sensitive to what's happening in the American church because we're a part of it. I also get a chance to communicate with other pastors in the area and talk to them too about the patterns that they are seeing in their churches. It's good to have that sort of networking with other churches in the area. And one of the growing problems that we're seeing right now is an apparent breakdown in the foundational relationship in the church between the shepherds and the sheep. And that is a fundamental foundational relationship between the shepherds and the sheep. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying this morning that this is an overwhelming issue at Oak Hill, but I will say that recently we've seen flashes of it here. And what that tells our elder team is let's take some time when a text like this comes up that speaks of shepherds and shepherding, let's take the time to slow down and address it head on. So just as to get your minds going, the thing I want to talk about this morning is what are the shepherds of the church called to be? What are they called to do? And how is the flock called to receive their shepherding? These are really important questions for the health of any church, the unity of any church. So we as Americans, we know this, we have a love affair with individualism. Did you know that? Feels like it's genetically wired into us. By nature, we seem to, to be wired to stand against authority. Most of us don't like the idea of being told that we need to be subject to anyone, right? Is this come out of the Revolutionary War, Boston Tea Party? I don't know what it is, but don't tell me that I have to submit to somebody. We just don't like that. Or we're prone to be suspicious of those who are put in charge of us. It seems to be what what we've come to, to grow up with. But ironically, we're also a people that likes to avoid confrontation. So try to explain all that, right? You, you can see all the sort of strange ways that that might play out. We don't want to submit, but we also don't want to confront people. So as a result, we can be quick to jump ship whenever things get hard in the life of the church. Things get difficult. There's conflict. There's bumps. There's bruises, whatever. And, and we prefer to run away from things rather than deal with them. It's okay to admit it. There's a lot of us in this room, okay? We just, it's just easier to run away, right? There's an old joke, maybe you've heard this about, about Christians. Um, there's a, a, a man stranded on a deserted island, a Christian, right? And, and he's there for many years, and one day he gets rescued, and the rescuers come up to the beach where he'd been living, and they look up, and, and they see three buildings, three structures. And they, they say, well, what's that structure right there? And he said, oh, that's, that's been my home. They're like, oh, cool, okay, what's the second building there in the middle? And I say, well, that's, that's my church, all alone on the island, but that's my church. And they're like, okay, dare I ask, what's the third building? And he says, what? That's the church I used to go to. <laughs> I mean, it, there's a little bit of truth in this, right? So it hurts a little bit. So when we become unhappy with leaders in the church, we tend to go through a series of stages. First of all, quiet aggression that sometimes leaks out into gossip and, 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 and bad conversations, then avoidance, and then finally when that bitterness sort of sticks in our craw and it rolls around in there for a while, we move to escapism and we generally blow up and we run away. Now, so take that tendency that we have and add to the mix social media. What has social media taught us over the years? Have you noticed how aggressive people are behind a keyboard? Have you noticed this? Much more aggressive than they ever would be in person. It is stunning how harsh and aggressive people have become. Here's the other thing about social media. Everybody now believes that they have an opinion that is worth trumpeting to the whole world, right? Everybody thinks they have an opinion that everybody should hear. Doesn't matter if it's flawed, doesn't matter if it's completely uninformed, Everybody needs to hear what I think. Every thought now has to go into the public square. People can't help themselves. 
It has to get out there. And most folks believe now that their opinion is equally valid and equally true as any other opinion. That's why we're all dealing right now with this thing you keep hearing about misinformation and disinformation. Everybody has an opinion. Social media has really, really brought that about in us. But here's what we need to know. When it comes to the life of the church, we have to realize that the body of Christ is not governed by that type of cultural value that has been produced in our world in recent years. We have to remember that there is necessary order and structure in the church, that there is authority and there is submission, and that's been built into the way God designed his body, right? He expects that we're going to pay attention, that we're going to follow his instructions. Now, for a moment, I just want you to think about how difficult this is. Bring together any, any let's just say the size of our church, 150 people. Bring any 150 people together into a tight space, um, and, and they all have different backgrounds, and they have wildly different personalities, and they all have a million preferences and opinions, and you know, they come from you know, different countries, different parts of, parts of America, all these differences, right? And then we throw them together and say, live life together. It's a recipe for chaos. I mean, you really think about it, like all those differences, and then we say, you guys are now family. Your brothers and sisters live life together. It could get really chaotic. It is nothing short of a miracle that the church has lasted 2,000 years. And it's because the Spirit is, is guiding the church, right? We know it's a divine thing. But think about that. Think about the danger that we all face in terms of all of these clashes of, of people that are so different. So here's the truth. Life in the church is not always easy. It's because, <laughs> I get amens on that. Is that good or bad? Yes. Because when you live life with another 149 people, and I mean really live life, because look, we could live superficial lives and just wave at each other on Sundays, but when you really live life together and you're walking together over years through the ups and downs of life, you're going to run into a variety of problems and conflicts. It is going to happen. And yet we always act surprised when it happens, don't we? I heard once a, a guy describe the church like a rock tumbler. Anybody know what a rock tumbler is? It's, it's a device that you can put a whole bunch of jagged rocks into and you, you put it on high and it spins over a long period of time. And what happens to those rocks over a period of time? It rounds all those jagged edges. And by the time it's done, after much, much time, they come out really smooth and polished. So the end result is beautiful, but the process is gnarly. It's gnarly. So we're in a rock tumbler together as a church family, and we're all getting our edges rounded, and we're getting polished over time, and that's a lifelong process, but that process of the tumbling, it can be rough. So at times, our, you know, our preferences and opinions are going to come out. They're going to come to the surface. We're not going to express them in constructive ways. There's going to be times when bumps and bruises come and feelings get hurt and comments are made that aren't as sensitive as they should be and we get wounded by that. We're going to look around and feel the need to criticize at some point or to, to grumble against leadership, maybe to hold grudges against people, to get gossipy when we don't feel like people are listening to us. These things happen. As we live life in this rock tumbler, there are so many things that can come out that are unhealthy and can cause damage in the body of Christ. And we've all seen, if not seen, at least heard examples of churches where these things have happened and churches eventually bend under the pressure of that and then one day they go, they go kaboom, right? They blow up and they split and they close down or people are left with hard feelings. We've all heard these examples. Now, one of the most important safeguards that God has given us to prevent a church from going kaboom, is this right understanding between shepherds and sheep. This is one of the safeguards we have, understanding how Christ has organized and structured his church. And the beautiful thing is the good shepherd has given us a blueprint. You read the Gospels, you get the blueprint. You read the New Testament epistles, you see how that blueprint is lived out. We just have to be faithful to the text of Scripture. It's sort of like a healthy marriage. Okay, When both a husband and wife look at Scripture and embrace their particular roles in marriage, and they both do it, it's beautiful, isn't it? The same thing is true in the household of God. When both shepherds and sheep look at their roles and say, this is what God calls me to do, and they both do it at the same time, it is a beautiful thing, right? Shepherds leading, serving, protecting, feeding, and caring. 
Sheep affirming and following and listening and trusting and honoring. When we do that at the same time, it's sweet because God designed it. Okay, and so that's what we all ought to be after. Now, the New Testament is unmistakable in its teaching that the local church has to have this order and structure, and it starts with these men we call shepherds. And actually, the better term is under-shepherds, right? Because they are only shepherds under the authority of the good shepherd, which is Jesus. Many of you know this, but it bears repeating. There's a number of titles in the New Testament which describe these under-shepherds, both in terms of who they are, identity, and what they do, their function, In the American church today, we tend to think of the senior pastor. Can I just tell you that's a really misleading concept? I know know that's been with us for many, many decades. That's really not in Scripture. You're just not going to find this idea of a senior pastor. It's been misunderstood. In fact, the word pastor in the Greek language only shows up one time in the entire New Testament, which tells you something. That, That is not the most common term for one who leads a church. The word is poimen, or See if I have it. Uh, there it is. Good. And it comes from Ephesians 4.11. It says, And he, Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. That word in the Greek actually means literally what? Shepherd. That's what the word means. So when you call somebody pastor, you're really calling them shepherd. Just need to know that. So in spite of what you may have heard about you know, from somewhere else or some other church you've been a part of, a pastor isn't the single guy who does all the preaching and teaching and controls all the affairs of the church each and every day. That is a mistake made by far too many churches, in my opinion. I'll explain more about that later. In other places in the New Testament, we see other terms that describe what these leaders in the church are supposed to be. I'll give you some other, some other great Greek words here. We have presbyteros, right? Presbyteros are translated elders, and that emphasizes the spiritual maturity that these men have to have. doesn't necessarily mean age. It can mean age, but we know Timothy was a young man, and he was, he was an elder uh, and a pastor in a church. So it doesn't have to be age. It speaks of wisdom and maturity in the faith. We have episkopos, which is translated overseers, and that speaks to the function that these elders have to superintend the life of the church, to oversee the life of the church. And then finally, that last word, hegeomai, is translated leaders, which speaks to their identity as those who go before the flock and set the example for the rest of the sheep. They are leaders. So all these names, they're synonymous in terms of the office that's present in the church. These, whether you want to call them, you could call The seven guys that lead our church, you can call us pastors, you can call us elders, you can call us overseers, or you can just generically say these are our leaders. It's all synonymous in terms of the same office. Now, let me share with you three things about these shepherds. What they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to do, and last of all, what they're supposed to endure. That's our favorite part, right? First of all, let's start what they have to be. Above everything else... An elder has to be a vibrant, growing disciple of Jesus Christ, period. He must have a personal spiritual walk that produces in him a consistent integrity because if he doesn't have it, he can't pass it on to others. If he doesn't have that walk, how can he lead others to have that walk? So it starts with something he has to possess himself. He has to cultivate and guard his own heart in the strength and power of the Lord. 1 Timothy 4. Paul exhorts young Timothy to pay close attention to yourself. Uh, It's fascinating. Okay, The pastoral letters are so instructive for people in ministry. Paul says, you better start here, Timothy. Pay attention to yourself and then look at your teaching. Because one supports the other, right? If you have a godly walk, it lends credibility to your teaching. Pay attention to both. Then Paul says to the elders in in the city of Ephesus in Acts 20, be on guard for yourselves. That's where it starts. Now, why these warnings? Why these serious warnings? Because shepherds and leaders always have a target on their backs, right? The enemy wants to target them. They are big game for the enemy to try to bring down because if you bring down an elder, you can destroy a church. We've probably all seen it happen. And sadly, sometimes our spiritual enemy will use unhealthy church members from within the body as his agents to attack leadership from within. It's tragic, but we're warned about it in Scripture. 
It can come from within. It's also true that a shepherd can destroy his own testimony, so we don't want to always blame it on others. A shepherd can destroy his own testimony and damage a church if he's not connected to the vine and walking in the light. This is very, very important. Listen, leadership in the church is not just about leading well. There's a lot of men that can lead well from a worldly perspective. There's, you might know some business leaders that are excellent leaders. They're, they're gifted people. They're gifted. They're charismatic. They can lead people. Does not make them godly. We don't put leaders into the position of elders simply because they have a talent to lead. It starts with their walk with Christ. Very important to understand. Okay, so... That's what he has to be. What must a shepherd do? Broadly speaking, under shepherds follow the example of the chief shepherd and how he shepherds the flock to care for, to feed, and to protect. We have a particularly defined flock here at Oak Hill that's defined by membership that we as elders are responsible for. They've been entrusted to us. They belong to Jesus, but they've been entrusted to us. And we take that seriously. Now, Jesus is our model, but we'll never live up to that standard. Trust me, we never will. We're not perfect, but that has to be our heart and our goal, to shepherd as Jesus does. The faithful under-shepherd has to know his sheep by name. Has to know his sheep by name. This is one of my great concerns about when I see churches that are so big that sheep don't know their elders and elders don't know their sheep. The The shepherd should know them by name and the sheep ought to be able to recognize him and his voice. So he has to be know, he has to know and he has to be known. The faithful under-shepherd has to be willing to sacrifice himself for the flock, right? There's a cost to being a leader in the church. It is a heavy responsibility. It's time-consuming. It's emotionally taxing. It requires laying aside comfort and ease all the time. Oftentimes it requires long days and sleepless nights because you are concerned about your sheep. It never really stops. The faithful under-shepherd has to dig in when things get tough. He can't be like that hired hand who just runs away when things get hard. Doesn't work that way. He can't just leave the sheep to fend for themselves. So the shepherd in the local church has to step into difficult matters, hard things. I, I said it earlier, we don't like confrontation, but shepherds have to confront at times. They have to correct and admonish and rebuke. They've got to call people to account for their profession of faith. The hired hand doesn't do that. The hired hand, you know, he doesn't want to confront people. That's unpleasant. So he just ignores it. He doesn't deal with things, right? He hopes the conflict goes away. He doesn't, when he hears about false ideas, he doesn't confront it. That's, that's, that's not what I want to be about, he says. He's not out there to preach and teach things that really convict the heart. He just wants to preach happy things that keep people coming back. That's the hired hand. You know, even in his day, Spurgeon had to deal with these types of people. He said, they're willing to put up with anything for the sake of peace and quietness. And Spurgeon's ministry was anything but peaceful and quiet because he was constantly pushing against false ideas. If you want peace and quiet, you can do it and you can build a big giant church, but you won't be a faithful shepherd. So in the midst of all this, under shepherds in the church are called to watch over the souls of their flock. Imagine the weight of that, to watch over the souls of all the people in your flock. And that idea of keeping watch, this idea of staying alert, which you see all over the New Testament. It comes, the imagery comes from actual shepherds who constantly had to watch their animals. We talked about sheep last week, right? They just wander off. They're not the brightest things. They just wander off and get lost. So he's constantly got to watch. Well, that's true of people too. Folks in this church who have committed to membership, if we don't see you regularly, we're going to be like, have they wandered off? And we're going to want to know, are you okay? Or perhaps they're struggling in their spiritual walk. We're like, okay, are they sick? We need to attend to that. Or maybe they've wandered into sin. Are they in danger right now? Is the enemy attacking them? These are things that shepherds in the local church have to be paying attention to. When Peter was writing to the churches in Asia Minor, here's what he said. Great statement. He says, I exhort the elders among you. As your fellow elder. Do you see what Peter does here? He's an apostle, but he identifies himself with the other elder. I'm a fellow elder of yours. We're shepherding the church of God. He's not not claiming some high and mighty title, is he? As your fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. So there you see two of those Greek words, right? 
in one, shepherd, shepherd and overseer. Paul wrote very, something very similar to the Ephesian elders. He said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. God did that. Made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Here's why it's precious, right? Because he, Jesus, purchased it with his own blood. That's a high calling for a shepherd. It's Jesus' body. He purchased it with his blood. And now he says, you're a steward of this. It's a big deal. To shepherd a flock of sheep requires care and concern and oversight. Because listen, looking over the last 15 years, I can tell you trouble can happen very, very quickly in a church. It can spark up really quickly. And one, one, the elders will laugh one week. Everything is awesome. And, and we're, our meetings are simple and we're just sell, praising the Lord the next week. It's like, oh my goodness. You know, trouble's on our doorstep and we've got things that we got to deal with. It can happen very, very quickly. So we, our eyes are always on the flock. What is going on? Things that can happen. Lies begin to seep into the body. False ideas seep into the body. Harmful gossip begins to make its rounds within the church family. Grumblers seek to drag other people into their complaints with really negative conversations. False accusations made against others as a means of gaining attention. Boy, we can act out in all kinds of ways if, we're, if our hearts aren't guarded, right? And we can't be naive. Those things come from within the body itself. Here's what Paul said. He warned us of this very thing when he was, again, speaking to these elders from Ephesus. He said, I know. He says, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things. Therefore, be on alert. Man, it's, it's, a, it's a reality. We're on alert at all times because the enemy never sleeps. He never stops. Now, a big part of faithful shepherding is feeding the flock. That's why... Among the character traits of a shepherd, there is one, there's one skill that he has to have as an, as an elder, right? It's to be able to teach. Everything else is a character trait. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, they're character traits, but this one thing he's got to be able to teach. I'll give you one of the strongest instructions in the entire New Testament. Paul gives this to Timothy at the very end of his life. He says, I solemnly charge you. That, that's his way of saying, take this seriously. Solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and dead. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and with instruction. So elders lead by the word of God, not by their own word. That's really important to understand. We operate not just with authority, but we operate by authority. The authority of Christ himself. That's very, very important. And so we preach his word. And going back to Ephesians 4, that passage we looked at earlier, Paul says that God has given these pastors and teachers to the church for this purpose, for the building up of the saints, right? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. That's what elders need to be about. Equipping you guys to do the work that Christ has laid out for you to do. And we have this amazing statement in Ephesians 2 about how God has, has decreed all of these works for each one of you to do in time and space. We just need to be faithful to step into that and do it. And it's our job to equip you to be ready to do those things. That is our constant task as elders. And how long should we do this? Here's the rest of the verse. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Good luck with that. Right? to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to every single person being described as a mature man or woman, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, meaning we do this until what? He comes back. <laughs> it's a never-ending process. And praise the Lord for that. It keeps us busy. That was a joke. All of our teaching, our equipping of the body is laser-focused on those things, growing each sheep in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to know him, not just facts about him, but to help you dive deeper into a relationship with him. Because those are different things, aren't they? That is our focus, right? We're always moving you towards two important things you see in that verse, unity and maturity. Unity and maturity, growing in the knowledge of God. It's also important to understand that shepherds in the local church have to function together as a team. 
We have to work together. The New Testament always describes elders in the plural. The idea of a single senior pastor having all power and control in a church is not found in Scripture. It's not found there. And frankly, it's dangerous for all of that control and power to be in the hands of one man. No one man has the corner on wisdom. No one man does. To think he does, that he's capable of of leading everything by himself, is the height of arrogance. Plural leadership leads to collective wisdom. Seven guys on our team, we all are slightly different. We come at things from different angles. We work through things, and at the end, we're like, we agree. And it's beautiful. I'm just one vote, by the way, among seven. I sometimes get outvoted. Is it true? It's true. (laughs) And that's okay. That's good. I mean, again, that's part of me yielding to my brothers in love because it's not my church. It really isn't. We want collective wisdom. Plurality of leaders also prevents abuse from one man becoming so powerful that he can become abusive. We keep each other in check. These are the things you want your elders, the checks and balances you want your elders to have. So we've got to work together as a team. The last thing I'll mention about doing is that under shepherds do have to lead. We do have to lead. The church, especially today, needs men who will stand up with courage and conviction and lead. I mean, really, men today, are, are it, it's rough out there. We need men to stand up with courage and conviction and lead. One way that we can do that is by having a clear biblical picture of what the local church ought to be, what it ought to look like, what it ought to be doing, making sure that we understand as a team together what our ministry philosophy is, and then communicating that to you guys so that you can join us in that task so that we can do it together, so that we're striving always to be on the same page together, that we're all in a giant rowboat, and guess what? We are rowing in perfect time with each other so that we're going straight, right to our purpose. That's a big part of what a leader does. And that's how we individually get built up, and then as individually we're built up, the body together is built up. And again, because of Christ's design for his church, it's a beautiful thing to behold. Another important way that shepherds lead comes straight out of this text in John 10. Recall how Jesus says the true shepherd calls the sheep and then leads them out. He doesn't whip from behind, he leads them out. We just simply refer to this as setting the example. Elders cannot just stand in the back, be anonymous, and whip people and say, you guys need to start growing. They go in front of the people and they say, look, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I'm not doing. So they set the example. Going back to the Ephesians 4 4 passage, right? Um, Actually, no, let's go to the other pastoral epistles. To Timothy, Paul says this, in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. Titus, remember Timothy and Titus are Paul's two young protégés in the ministry, right? He's being a spiritual father to them and instructing them. Titus, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. The flock is called to consider the elders' conduct and imitate their faith. We're to set the example, you're to imitate our faith. Paul says it so beautifully to the Corinthian church. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. He's not saying follow me because I'm so such a super guy. He says, I'm following Christ, so let me lead the way you follow me. And that's the That's the pattern in Scripture. That's the pattern in the church. Credibility comes when our teaching as elders is backed up by that life of godliness and integrity that the church sees and goes, I want to be like that. That's how a church grows. Finally, what does a shepherd have to endure? Okay, this is a hard truth. Shepherds are going to endure opposition. And they are going to have to endure hardship, even attacks. In fact, Paul demanded that Timothy understand this. I'll give you a couple of passages. 2 Timothy 1.8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, Paul says, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. You want to sign up for ministry? Read the pastoral epistles. You'll find out that suffering is a big part of it. Another passage in the same letter. Oh, I got it, good. Therefore, my son, be strong, he says. Be strong, not in your own strength, but what? In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
The things which you've heard me, heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. You see the principle? Paul's, I'm your spiritual father. I have taught you. Now I want you to find other young men that you can teach. We're going to pass the, the true faith on, the true doctrine on. But then look what he says. Suffer hardship with me. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So the reality is leaders who stand firmly on biblical truth, who preach and teach and admonish and rebuke, using God's word, they are going to face opposition. You are going to offend people. That's part of the job. It's basically what you sign up for when you go into ministry. It's basically what you sign up for when you say, I'll be an elder in the church. I'd like to, I have a desire to become, if I qualify, I want to become an elder in the church. This is what you're signing up for. It's not fun, but it goes with the territory. And as I said, Spurgeon was constantly attacked. I mean, we, we tend to think of Spurgeon, I know I do, maybe, hopefully you do as well. Spurgeon's ministry was this incredibly successful preaching ministry, and it was. But that guy got hammered worse than anybody I've seen in this day today. Why? Because he was standing up against this liberalism that was trying to find its way into the Baptist Union in England. So he stood on truth, and boy, he took some shots. But who do we remember, him or the guys who took the shots? Yeah, faithful ministry for a very long time. Okay. Whew, deep breath. In the time we have left, I want to look at a particular verse in the New Testament that speaks, to, again, to shepherds and to sheep. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 13. I'll put it on the screen as well. But Hebrews 13, 17 is such an important passage. What's interesting is Hebrews 13, this is the end of the book. Uh, we don't know for sure. It might be Paul, but we're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. But as he's wrapping up his thoughts, right before he gets to the benediction, the closing, he has some very important truth bombs to drop. And this is a big one. Obey your leaders, he writes, and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, at first glance, you're like, okay, that speaks to the sheep. And that's true, but there's also some more things we learn in this about shepherding. First, you see that phrase there. I used it earlier. It says, they, church leaders, keep watch over your souls. That's our job as shepherds for everybody in our pasture here to watch over your souls. We are watchers and we watch everything. Ask any elder. We watch everything. Did you know every single elder meeting, we go through our roster of members and we're like, okay, what's going on? Have you heard from this person? This person, what's going on here? Who have you met with? And we're talking about our entire flock. That's incredibly important to us because we're watching over your souls. Very important. But notice the ominous phrase that comes after that. As those who will give an account. When you take on the mantle of leadership in Jesus' church, you're accountable to God for how you shepherd and how you, how you teach here at Oak Hill. And this is an incredibly humbling thing. I can tell you that I never forget this because every single time I step behind this thing, and this thing's here for a reason, right? It tells me that this is a sacred moment as I open God's word and exposit it. Never leaves my mind that I, give, I have to give an account someday for what I say here. Not just here, but how I shepherd you guys as, as a flock. It's very, very important. The seven elders in our body are stewards of this particular precious flock that Jesus bought with his own blood. Amazing. So we have to guard against ever becoming arrogant in the way we lead. Guys, I've known too many pastors over the years who have forgotten that they serve the, the chief shepherd. They've just, it's sort of drifted out of their minds. They become sort of autocrats that control everybody, control their congregations, men who love power too much, men who are looking to build their own kingdom, not God's. And we want to constantly guard against that here at Oak Hill. So I'm grateful Jesus mentioned this in Matthew chapter 20. He actually spoke to this. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It's not this way among you, he says to his disciples. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. And guys, this, for a shepherd, this is one of the most challenging things that we have to deal with. Because here's the thing. As an elder in this church, I do wield some authority. I'm supposed to wield some authority. And sometimes that, 
gets lived out in a way where I sit down with you and I have to be stern and uncompromising. And it's difficult. But I always have to keep in mind that my authority is not mine. It comes from Christ. And so I have to be very cautious in how I wield that authority. I've got to be gentle. I've got to be patient. I've got to be understanding. So this is a very, and and I share this with you so that you'll pray for us because this is a very delicate balance to be able to have to have to wield authority in the body, but at the same time to make sure you do it in a way that is under the authority of the chief shepherd and to do it with love and with grace and with patience because we're all in process, right? And we don't expect things to happen like a microwave. Life is a journey. And so, man, it's a tough balance. So we need your prayers because someday, and I'm looking at my guys over here, we have to give an account to God for how we wielded this authority as stewards. Now, let's look at the sheep, okay? I shared all that with you so that you can understand your elders more and, and the weight that we feel. And by the way, it's a joy. I, I'm, not, I'm not complaining. I'm not asking for you to feel bad for me. I still say I've got the greatest job in the world. But it's a heavy job. It's a heavy responsibility. So it's good for you to understand what our role is so that you can pray for us and that you can respond well. I asked the question last week of you members of, of the flock, are you willing to be shepherded? Willing to be shepherded? Are you willing to follow your shepherds? That's the key question for you this morning. Let's go back to that Hebrews 13 passage again and let's look at some of the words here. There's that O word. Obey. Obey and submit to your leaders, it says. Now, it's interesting, the language here. You have to understand, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews used a very elegant form of Greek, much more elegant than other parts of the New Testament. And the way he uses words here is very, very interesting. This verb, pytho, for obey, is an interesting word. It has a wide range of meaning. It can mean obey in the strictest sense, but it's not the same word that, for example, Paul uses in Ephesians 6.1 where it says, children, obey your parents. It's, it's not that straightforward. This is a different word that... that is translated either persuade or have confidence in. So I think if you you bring those three things, obey, persuade, and have confidence in, the idea that's being communicated is because you have confidence in your leaders, because you've been persuaded by their testimony as godly shepherds, obey them, follow them. That's the command you're given here. In other words, the author of Hebrews assumes that they've earned your trust by their character, by their example. And if they have, if they have, you should certainly say, yeah, I want to follow my shepherds here at Oak Hill. I trust them. I've watched them. I want to imitate their faith. That's what he means there. The other verb there for submit is also an interesting word, hupaiko. This is the only place in the entire New Testament that this word is used. It has the same root for the common word for submit, but it's slightly different. Listen to this now. It means don't resist. Or in a positive way, it means yield to. So this is very interesting. It's okay to say, to translate in a basic form, obey and submit, but I'm going to give you the Jeff No version of this particular verse. This is my paraphrase of it. There it is. See? I'm even quoted. Here's basically what he's saying in this, in this statement. Follow your leaders and yield to their oversight because they have such an important function in your life to watch over your souls. That's what he's getting at here. And then the author of Hebrews does something that is very unusual in Scripture. In commanding them to do this, he appeals to their benefit. It's very interesting. He says, listen, if you are constantly resisting your leaders, if you are a constant pain in the neck (laughs) to your leaders, if you're grumbling and criticizing, if you're never content, if you're always pointing out flaws, you are going to wear your leaders out. You're just going to wear them out. That is not good for you. That's the appeal that he makes here. You're going to cause them to groan in their shepherding of you. You're going to steal their joy in the calling that God has in their life. You're causing them to groan. How would that be an advantage to you? The next time you feel like criticizing, grumbling, or or gossiping, or going in that, how is what I'm about to do or say an advantage to me? How is what I'm about to do an advantage to the body as a whole, to our church family? If I'm going to be one who makes 
the elders groan? It's a really important question. Calvin, Calvin talked a lot about this. Of course, he was a, a pastor, right? He said this. He said, be teachable and ready to obey. For if they, the elders, have their minds restrained by grief or weariness, though they may be sincere and faithful, they will yet become disheartened and careless. It would be unprofitable to the people to cause sorrow and mourning to their pastors by their ingratitude. Man, nothing truer has ever been said. Man, that's a great quote. So friends, don't be the cause of grief and groaning in the body. I know that you think you know what's best. This goes back to the culture that's being sort of cultivated right now. Everybody has a strong opinion. Everybody thinks they're right. Every opinion is valid. You think you know what's best. I get that. But listen, God has not called you to correct your shepherds. God has not called you to undermine the work that your shepherds are doing in this local church. They've been installed in leadership through extensive testing over many years. So consider their experience. Listen to them. Take their counsel. Trust the Lord as you obediently follow the men that he has put into leadership. Now, am I saying that your elders are beyond question or beyond criticism? No, I'm not. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that. Sometimes, if criticism or questions are done in the right spirit, with the right goal in mind, which is understanding, mutual understanding, which is unity, then criticism can be very helpful and constructive because we're not perfect. Elders are not perfect, not by a long shot, but be careful. The burdens that your leaders already carry are very, very weighty, so don't add to that weight unnecessarily. Does that make sense? Strive to help us help you. What, what movie is that from? Is that, anybody know? Help me help you. Oh, come on. Which was it? Jerry Maguire. Thank you. Man, my brain could get. Help me help you. Help us help you. Help us help you. Seriously, there, there is a symbiotic thing here, right? Strive to think the best of your leaders. Strive to understand that we have reasons to do what we do. Be confident that your leaders are always in the word, always in prayer before we make decisions. Always seeking unity at the table. Always united as one voice. We walk through that process. Here's the amazing thing. You guys know the, the word picture of an iceberg, right? There's like this small percentage above the water line and massive amount under. What you see in ministry at Oak Hill is, is only what's above the water line, but there is a massive amount of prayer and study and discussion and rock tumbling going on under the water line. So, support your leaders. At the end of the day, know that we want to serve you with joy. And this passage is very, very important. Make our ministry here a joy and not a grief. Now, the question may come up in your mind. What if I don't have confidence in my leaders? What if I can't follow them with a clear conscience? Then you should find a church where you can fully 100% support your leaders. But having said that, here's my caution. Make sure before you do that, before you jump ship, as we talked about sometimes, we're tempted, oh, this is really hard, I'll just jump ship. Make sure you do a self-assessment about why you want to make a change. Ask yourself, am I sure the problem is my leaders? Or is it me? Or is it a combination of the two? And if so, if it's a combination of the two, would it be wiser for me to work through those issues with my leaders? Would that please the Lord? rather than just pulling the ripcord? Those are important questions. Because you all know that unity in the body is, is really important to Jesus, right? So if you find yourself in conflict with leadership for some reason, you do have a very important choice to make. Stay in the body and do the hard thing, which means working through the issues in a biblical fashion, always with an eye towards forgiveness, mutual forgiveness and reconciliation, or to make the hard choice to leave a church in peace the right way but here's the one thing you can't do. Stay in the church and grumble against it. Those two choices are there. The better, the, always the best choice. 
Let's sit down and let's work towards forgiveness and reconciliation. That's, that's what pleases the Lord the most. But if you can't and you have to leave, sometimes that happens. But you cannot, and I've said this a hundred times, so some of you guys are like, stop saying this, Jeff. You cannot be discontent. You cannot undermine your leader, stay in the body and just grumble about it. Because then you become the factious person that Titus talks about. Titus 3.10 Paul calls him a factious person. That is not pleasing to the Lord. Amen? But listen, as I wrap up, I want to implore you to keep in mind that your shepherds love you. And we, we, it is a joyful thing for us to serve here. In response, we want you to love and respect and honor your shepherds. Listen to what Paul says to, to Titus here. He says, these things... Titus, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Interesting statement. Why? Why not disregard Titus? Because for the believers in that church in Crete, to disregard Titus would be to disregard God. Titus is preaching God's word, so to disregard Titus is to disregard God, and that's a serious thing. That gives you some of the idea of what elders have to do. We have to speak God's word even when it's difficult. But look at these two passages. 1 Timothy 5.17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. They should be honored in the assembly, not constantly undermined, criticized, fingers pointed at, but honored. 1 Thessalonians 5, we request of you, brothers and sisters, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. My goal this morning was to help you understand on the front side the weight of being a, a shepherd here. Again, not complaining, not whining, just, just laying it out for you guys so that you can fully understand that and hopefully arrive here, even if there's disagreement. Even if you say, I don't understand why you guys do that that way. <laughs> or I don't understand why this was said. But ultimately because your shepherds deserve honor and love and appreciation. Calvin, one more time, and I'll be done, I promise. Calvin said, the heavier the burden they, elders, bear, the more honor they deserve. For the more labor anyone undertakes for your sake and the more difficulty and danger he incurs for you, the greater are your obligations to him. That's a great statement. So a caring team of shepherds will build up the sheep and a caring flock will build up its shepherds. It's a symbiotic relationship, isn't it? Just like the husband and wife, just like that healthy marriage where both, both husband and wife understand their roles and fulfill it. Same thing with shepherds and sheep. It becomes a joyful thing and not a rock tumbler. Last quote, John Piper. Just because Piper sums his, sometimes John Piper's just really good at summarizing things. Have you noticed that? He says this, speaking about Hebrews 13, 17. He says, what this verse is pleading for is a kind of supernatural, spirit-empowered community where the pastors are seeking their joy in God so that they can be an advantage to their people. And in this supernatural spirit-empowered community, the people understand that their soul, their life, is at stake in finding the same joy through the joyful ministry of their leaders. And when they find that, their joy in God will overflow and it will come back to their advantage a hundredfold. Symbiotic relationship as we do it together. May that be true of us here at Oak Hill as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have any questions about this, any questions at all, I'll say it again. I love coffee. Buy me coffee and I'll meet you anywhere. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for how clear your word is on difficult subjects like this. Lord, you have given us an order and a structure and you've said, love each other well in the midst of my design. And Lord, we confess that both shepherds and sheep sometimes don't do it well. That we fall so short of the standard that, that we know is correct, Lord, but we, we act out and we lash out and, and, and it does become a rock tumbler. Lord, I pray for our church family that we would be a body that is constantly seeking forgiveness, that we are extending grace to one another, that we are seeking reconciliation when we hurt. 
or when we wound somebody or when we feel that way, Lord, that that we would act in biblical ways, not in self-centered ways in how we resolve these types of things. So Lord, thank you for your plan, for your word that tells us how to do this well. Make us faithful servants, Lord, as we continue to seek to do your will in this church. Thank you for the way you've blessed us here at Oak Hill. Thank you for our time this morning. We love you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.